0: Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. So Luke chapter 19, very interesting, but uh, we get introduced to a guy by the name of Zacchaeus right out of the gate. How many of y'all have ever heard of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus. Right, If you went to church growing up, maybe you learned the little song that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he and he climbed up in the sycamore tree and he's presented as this cute, nice guy. But he's not. The truth is, if you were to look at Zacchaeus' life and do a biographical sketch on him, this dude had a brutal reputation. He was short. Probably had the little man syndrome, chip on his shoulder. Matter of fact, we have a picture of Zacchaeus I want to share with you right here. There he is. (laughs) There he is. uh, Right there, modern day Zacchaeus. But uh, I've taken some liberties with Steve, who's on staff. I love him so much, and he is definitely one of my shortest friends. Uh, But Zacchaeus, when you look at him, he was a very rich guy. He had plenty of money. But if you do a biographical sketch of his life, man, he was miserable. He was a crooked dude. And when you read about him, he was the chief tax collector, which modern-day speaking, it would be kind of like being the head dude of the IRS. Y'all with me? Barb cringes around tax time how are we going to be scrutinized how are we going to be penalized there's a couple of people in our church that recently retired from the irs and i can tell you people that even work for the irs are not even fans of the irs how many ways will they tax my dollar you ever sit there and think about that What is their agenda? To quote the viral sensation, do these rich men north of Richmond even care about the common man? Great line, is it not? Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. He took advantage of people. No one liked him. No one respected him. No one Trusted him. They avoided being around him. We, we, we sang that cute little song, but it's an inaccurate portrait of who this guy really was. Brutal reputation, power hungry, uh, money hungry, wanted control. But he heard that this guy by the name of Jesus, stories were circulating that Jesus was offering hope and offering life and setting people free. He heard that Jesus was coming to town, Jericho area, and so he wanted to see Jesus. The crazy thing is, even though he wanted to see Jesus, Jesus already knew who Zacchaeus was. He knew exactly who he was, what he was about, but Jesus was about to offer Zacchaeus a life that he could not even possibly Imagine. Jesus is about to offer him hope and healing and forgiveness and freedom. I want to make three observations on the life of Zacchaeus before we dive deeper into Luke 19. You start in verse 3 through verse 6, and it says Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was unable to because of the crowd. He was small, short in stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up in the sycamore tree. And uh, he he was trying to see Jesus when he passed by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, "Uh, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I'm staying at your house. For today I must stay at your house. He hurried down, received Jesus with excitement and joy. I'm going to give you three observations with Zacchaeus. Don't miss this. I believe that the things that we extract, even in this text from Zacchaeus, are the manifestation of a transformed life that truly embraces Christ. The first observation would be this. He received Jesus joyfully. With great excitement and joy, he received Christ. Even when Jesus said, I'm staying at your house, the text reads, with great excitement, he's like, man, this is so cool. I mean, let, me, let, me, let me make an observation for you. Don't miss this. Not only did Zacchaeus welcome Jesus into his home, he welcomed him into his heart. You can invite people into your home and never open your heart. People do relations, relationships at such a surface level. Their their status quo at best. You're not going to go below street level with them. They'll invite you into proximity, but they're not going to open up their heart to you. You see, the way we do life at the Cross Loganville is that we believe your story matters. And so we believe that it is important not only for you to be known, but it's important for us to share our lives. Even when Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, He says, not only did did we minister the word, but we opened up our very lives to you. What makes this culture work here is that we open up our very lives. We go from street-level conversation, surface-level conversation, just sports talk, weather talk, and we go, we want to know who you are. We want to know what makes you mad, glad, sad, what hurts you, what scares you, what fears grip you. We want to know the highs and lows Of your love. We call that soul talk. Zacchaeus went to a place of opening his heart, his soul. Soul talk is when we're hanging out with people and we share what is truly alive with us inside of us with another person. Soul talk also implies that we receive what is truly alive inside of another person when they share their heart with us. We don't judge them, ridicule them, label them, put them down. Soul talk, man, that's what God has called us to be about. And that is foreign in so many church cultures where people just kind of do life on the surface. Nobody knows you. and Probably for a lot of people, they don't want to be known. But Spencer, once we are known and we're vulnerable and we lay our hearts out, it's amazing what God will start to do. See, we live in a world of self-talk. And self-talk is the natural language of the fallen human sinful people, if you will. Self-talk, self-talk. Promotion, self-protection, self-elevation. It's all about me. I'm focusing totally on me. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't bring healing in your life. Soul talk is when I start to share what's truly alive, and I'm motivated to share that for the purpose of redemption. I want to be redeemed. I want to be restored. I want to experience healing. So when we open up our true soul, we're not just highlighting those great moments of our life, and we're not fragmenting disclosure. It's full authenticity of saying, can I share my life with you? Here's where I'm at. And we want to see people move toward healing. Zacchaeus opened up his heart. And so we encourage people here. One of the values is get connected in small group. Start to do life in a circle with other people. Because when you start to do that, they know you. You know them. You pray together. You care for one another. You reach out to each other when you're going through turbulent times. But if you're disconnected and you're not plugged in and you're not in a small community, how does anybody know when you're going through turbulent times? I mean, we do come to the table where, like, you can sign up and be a part of, like, three or four couples, and you get together, and you go into someone's home, and you break bread. We, we launched this, Barb and I did, and with you guys, Spencer and Carrie, and there were other couples that came in there, and we sat down, and it's like, what's your story And people started sharing, and people started healing, and people started breaking free because they realized that their story mattered. It's so important to get to that place. Now, let me make this observation back to Zacchaeus. There's an interesting contrast if you pay attention to the life of Zacchaeus versus the the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus are both rich guys. But when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he basically wanted to know, what is the minimum that you're requiring? How much do I really have to do in order to inherit eternal life? What rules do I need to keep? How much of my stuff can I keep holding on to and still claim to have relationship with you? He never opened his heart because he did not recognize that Jesus was the greatest treasure. There's a lot of people oftentimes in conversation when you talk with them. They, they, they will flirt around with the church piece. But when it's like, well, if I really surrender, what am I going to have to give up? How much of my fun will I have to lay aside? See, see, see that was the rich young ruler. When Zacchaeus embraces Christ, He's not asking any of those questions. He's so excited that Christ is willing to hang out with him that he opens not just the door to his home, but the door to his heart. And he's like, I'm welcoming you in with excitement. I know that you're the ultimate treasure. I know that what I've been looking for in life is you, not money, not stuff, not title, not wealth. I I know. And when you ponder the life of Zacchaeus, he wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to listen to Jesus. He wanted to just worship Jesus with his heart. Is that you? Is that your narrative today? Have you received the Lord with great excitement? Verse 8 says Even Zacchaeus looks at Jesus and says, Lord, He calls him Lord, master, authority. There's a transition that's happened with him. He goes, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'll pay them back four times as much. The second observation, which is crucial, is this. He expressed sincere repentance. When we embrace Christ with an open heart and an open mind, Joyfully, you know what's going to lead to violent repentance. It's turning from every less wild lover that we've attached ourselves to. Zacchaeus, even in this statement, what he's saying is this I don't want anything to interfere with me knowing you, worshiping you, honoring you. I don't want any interference in my life. He even says, If I've jacked it up with anybody, let me tell you, I'll pay back 400% of anything that I've defrauded. Like, I'm telling you, God, I'm serious. Jesus, I'm serious about knowing you. you Jesus didn't tell him to do it. See, the manifestation of a changed heart that is truly living in repentance is I want to honor you. I want to do whatever I can to bring you glory. Glory. This is not about me. You're my master now. You're my Lord now. And it's not about saying, what's the minimum? How little can I do and still be accepted? That's not the heart of the gospel. Repentance leads to life change. Repentance is going the extra mile. Repentance is saying, I jacked that up. I want to make it right. I want to get right with that person. And it leads to this heart of generosity, which is the third observation. He immediately says, 400%, I'll pay it back. I don't want anything but you. Generosity is the greatest apologetic that we have in declaring the faith with the world. And I truly believe with all my heart that if you've truly, truly received Christ, as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God if I have truly received Christ I have repented and unplugged from all these things of the world and it's going to lead me to a place where I'll look at my time and the talents God's given me and the treasures anything financially and I'm like here use it however you want to has that happened in your life that's one of the things I look for in people. Oh, you say you know Jesus, but you're not living a generous life. You say you know Jesus, but you, you're still wallowing in sin. You haven't repented. You can't call him Lord, Lord, and continue to allow the things of the world to be your master. It's not going to work. And so when you pick up the text here, it says in verse 9 and verse 10, like if I, had, if I had to take the entire gospel of Luke, And tell you the one verse that is the center teaching central verse of the entire gospel of Luke. It would be Luke 19.10. Because Jesus says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the key verse in the whole thing. Jesus, why did you come? To seek and to save that which was lost. One of the greatest conclusions that we can come to. One of the greatest conclusions we can come to is to realize we're lost. Lord, I'm lost because then I become a candidate to be found. And I'm like, I need to be found. You're not going to get found if you don't realize you're lost. And it's like coming to realize I'm a sinner and I'm alienated and I'm separated. When you ponder the life of Zacchaeus, three things, received Jesus with joy violently repents, and then he starts to live a generous life. Now, let me dive deeper. Let me dive deeper. Flip on down to verse 28. Here's where I'm going to spend the remainder of my time. A lot of stuff in Luke, but here's where I'm going to land for the remainder of our time. So as you pick up in verse 28, Jesus has this encounter with Zacchaeus, and now We've read for the last four chapters that his face is set toward Jerusalem. He is headed toward Jerusalem. That's where he's going to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's where he's going to offer himself up as a substitution for us. He who knew no sin will become sin. He will die a criminal's death. Now, he's headed to Jerusalem and he rides in on a donkey. Let me give you some observation in the text. He rides in on a donkey, not a chariot, not some great parade, a donkey. Why did he ride in on a donkey? Because it was a statement of humility. I am a humble king. You want me to set up an earthly kingdom now. Not going to happen. I did not come to be served by you guys. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So he rides in on this donkey, which is a statement of humility. Then immediately as he's riding into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, the people are waving palm branches. What was that significant of or symbolic of? It meant, oh, we're waving these because you're the victorious king. We know who you are. When kings would go out to battle and armies would go out to battle and they would come back victorious, the people in the Old Testament, they would be waving palm branches. We're victorious and you're victorious. It was a sign that we know who you are. You're the victorious king. They take their cloaks and their garments and lay them on the ground, on the road as he's coming in. Here he comes in humility. Oh, we've got the palm branches, but we've laid our garments on the ground. What was that for? Because we recognize that you're royalty. We're bowing. We're taking off what we've got. We're we're setting it before you. You're royalty. We know who you are. And then the people began to praise God rejoicing and singing, and they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means please save us, please save us. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and glory belong to you. Hosanna, Hosanna. So the people that really had repented and had surrendered, they were like, we're in awe, we know who you are. No, they didn't know that this would be his last ever trip to Jerusalem. They didn't know that he would die a criminal's death here in just a few days. But Candace, they're bowed down to him. Oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us. Blessed is he. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the king. We're waving our palm branches. Victory belongs to you. So Jesus makes his way in. To Jerusalem. And now the scripture says that he was on the Mount of Olives. Barbara and I were there about five years ago, standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down through the Kidron Valley, orchards, vineyards. The temple would be at a distance when Jesus is standing there. And all of this was symbolic of God's covenant that he had made with Israel, made with the people. And he sees the landscape before him. And Jesus is looking over it. And the scripture says he began to weep. The word weep there means he began to wail. And he began to sob as he looked over the the city of Jerusalem. He looked over the people. He's weeping. Why is he weeping? Because he's going to be crucified? Because he's going to be betrayed? No. He's weeping because he came into his own people and his own people rejected him. The scripture says he came into his own and his own received him not. And he's looking, Steve, over this whole people group. All the masses of people have come to Jerusalem for Passover. Thousands upon thousands are there. And he's looking at them weeping because he realizes the consequences of their unbelief their unbelief they don't believe me they're rejecting god's salvation god's hope god's forgiveness and he's weeping as he looks over jerusalem over the people god has given you this covenant god is giving you these signs and he's weeping oh you're not going to receive it you're going to reject me you're rejecting god you've ignored god stop stop When is the last time you wept over a lost family member, over a lost friend? When is the last time you wept and wailed and sobbed when you looked at a life and you go, they're so misguided? They're hellbound, they're living in confusion. When is the last time you looked and you just wept? Your heart broke over that family member, that friend, that coworker, worker in your life. They're on their way to hell, God. If you do not intervene and if they do not respond to the gospel, you are going to bust hell wide open. My dad came to faith in June of 1984. I came back from playing baseball my first full year in pro ball. And when I got back to Georgia, I was playing up in the New York Penn League up in New York. And I flew back home. And, I mean, Dad was rough. Dad did construction, drywall. I mean, we didn't go to church. It was rough. But Dad had surrendered to Christ in June of 84. And when he picks me up, he's like, I need to talk to you. I've given my life to Christ. All this hell raising, drinking, partying, all this crap you're doing, son, you've got to clean it up. Couldn't clean it up. I continued to raise hell, party, drink, chasing the whatever, the things of the flesh. And I remember about three months after I had been home, I came in one night at about 11:30, crash, I fall asleep, and at about 2:30 that morning, I hear this noise, and I'm like, "What is going on?" And I get up and walk out, small, probably 1,200, 1,100 square foot home that we lived in. You could hear it. I mean, it was not well insulated. It was rough, right? But I walk out of my bedroom and I look on the living room floor and my dad is on his face. And my dad is crying out, God, I love my family. God, I didn't raise them right. I didn't raise them to know you. But God, I believe you can change them. And my dad, man, with tears dripping as he was sobbing and snot was flying, he started crying out on behalf of our family. And he goes, God, save my son. Lord, I love Big Tim, but he's lost his hell, God. He's going to spend eternity in hell. And I remember standing there and just watching tears flood his face. And I'm like, he's sobbing. Oh, when something or someone you love deeply is lost and hurting, it will bring you to tears. It will bring you to your knees. He was crying and begging God to save me. And I'll never forget that. When I was pondering this text that Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, a people that he loves. God had made a covenant with Israel and he's sobbing. When something you love, someone you love so deeply is lost, it will bring you to your knees. October of 85, a year later, I would surrender to Christ. And I remember as I fell on my face before the Lord, I knew my sin was ever before me. I couldn't save me, fix me, change me. And as I fell on my face before the Lord and cried and wept... Oh, God, please save me. It brought me to tears. I'm lost. I'm on my way to hell. It brought me to tears. Ten years ago, I remember last Sunday sitting right there, and Benji was up here at my son was preaching. And I remember I was sitting there, and I was thinking, wow, ten years ago, God, Barb and I, we followed him up to Murfreesboro, Middle Tennessee State, where he He was playing baseball. We dropped him off. He's 18 years old. He's a college freshman. But I looked at him and I said, Son, you're going to live out what you believe. You're not going to live what I believe. You're not going to live what your mom believes. But you're going to live out what you totally believe. And son, what you believe is not consistent with the gospel, and I know it. As we got into my truck to drive back home, Tears began to stream down my face. Or that's my boy, but he's pursuing the flesh and he's lost and he's out there. And I remember praying for him. There were m- mornings I would get up, Lord. I lift up Benji. I lift him up, he's lost. Yeah, we prayed for you, Rachel. Prayed for you repeatedly. Lord, she's lost. She's on her way to hell. She acknowledges you with her lips. So did Benji. But their hearts are far from you. God, I I love these kids. They're my two oldest, and they're not walking with you in tears. I would see Barb in tears praying for Rachel, praying for Benji. I remember in April of 2019 when Barb takes Hannah. She's so sick. She's so knocked down, and she takes her to Rochester, Minnesota, to the Mayo Clinic. And Barb calls me after a few days there, and she goes, she has cystic fibrosis. They're going to hospitalize her for at least two weeks. I call Kara. I said, Kara, I don't even know what this means. Kara, my baby is hurting, and I wept. I sobbed. I can't save her. I can't fix her. I'm in Georgia. They're up there. I can't even be with her. Do you hear me? When you love something and somebody deeply and you want to see them get it and they don't, God used those midnight prayers of my dad to bring me to my knees. I'm like, there's a God. He's not just calling out to some drywall in the ceiling. He's calling out to a God that's really listening. And the Holy Spirit began to convict my life. I was like, oh God, I've got to have you. When I pick up this text here and I see Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives and I'm like, I get it. I get it. I get it was a family visiting for the first time in here this morning, and during our prayer time, the husband and wife come up, and they're just crying out, crying out, first time walking in here. They're like, we have four adult kids that are not walking with the Lord, and my heart breaks. Jesus said in verse 42, as he starts to make his way down off the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, he's just saying how I wish today that you would understand the way of peace. Oh, I wish you got it. Man, I love you guys. I wish that you could see it. But now it's too late and peace is is being hidden from your eyes. I wish you would see it. God sent me for the lost sheep of Israel. This was like one last opportunity for the Jews to get it before the judgment would come. Destruction was coming, not only eternal destruction as a result of unbelief, but in 70 AD the temple is going to be destroyed and there's going to be earthly destruction. I'm talking about Jesus knew that judgment and destruction was on the horizon. And you guys, you, you, you've missed the opportunity. You, you you missed the opportunity. If you had only Known the way of peace. Stop. What opportunities have we missed? What opportunities are we missing right now in this moment? What have we allowed to suffocate the truth of the gospel? And what have we allowed to replace that as an idol in our life? What are the opportunities that I've shunned, that I've neglected? What blessings of God have I missed out on because I would not listen to what the Lord was saying? Have I spent enough time pressing into prayer to to say, Lord, show me anything that causes me to miss an opportunity or to miss you. And Lord, I violently repent of that. Man, I wish you would have known the way of peace but you're pursuing flesh and you're pursuing pleasure and you're pursuing the pride of life and you're pursuing this stuff. I wish you would have known peace, but you don't want to know it. Verse 45, Jesus enters the temple and begins to drive out these people that were wheeling and dealing, selling. He finally makes his way to the hub of Jerusalem, to the temple, and when he gets there, after arriving, the first thing he does is he goes straight to his father's house and he begins to clean out the temple. Verse 45, Jesus declares, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus knew that the gospel was for all The gospel was for all the nations. The gospel was for all the world. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the people. The outer court that Jesus would cleanse was the court of the Gentiles. It's where these Gentiles could come and receive like before the Lord healing and cleansing. They would worship God. And and, and, and the, the Jews of that time and the people in charge of the The temple had mocked these Gentiles. You're nothing but a bunch of dogs. That's what they called them. Samaritans, you're nothing but a bunch of mixed breeds. You're not dog of pedigree like us Jews are. And they absolutely mocked them and ridicule them. And Jesus is basically saying, you have made my father's house like a country club. It's like in a club only for the exclu- the, the, the exclusive ones. You've excluded all these people. You've absolutely eliminated people from coming to worship God. And it absolutely is not going to happen anymore. You've excluded so many people groups. You've shunned people groups. Signs would be around the Outer courts of the Gentile place of worship that would say, Gentiles, you're a bunch of dogs and if you cross this line, we're going to kill you. They had made it in an exclusive club and they were totally shunning people from coming to know the Lord, coming to worship the Lord. And he enters the temple and he begins to clean house. And what he said is, you guys have corrupted what true worship of my father is. You're not worshiping with sincerity. All you care about is money, power, and control, and it's not happening. Jesus was committed to restoring proper worship to the Father. Do you have that? He was committed to restoring proper worship to the Father. Jesus would make the statement that those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. So what we worship, how we worship, You go. God cares about true worship. He cares about true worship. I sit here and ponder this. It's like this will not be a place where people are wheeling and dealing. Not going to happen. Not the Cross Loganville. It's not going to be a place where people fall in here next September and start handing out their cards before the election. Not going to happen. This is a place of prayer. This is a place of healing. This is a place of restoration. This is a place where we can meet with God. When Nick and these guys stand here and lead us in worship, in song, this is a place to worship God, to connect with God, to find healing, to find hope. Are you with me? And they had contaminated the temple. Man, you guys have jacked it up. You've hijacked it. And I'm about to clean it up. So here would be my... My route. It would be my route. Think about this as we move into a time of prayer. The first thing I would, I would ask you, okay? Is there anything happening in your life? You go, I profess to know Christ. Is there anything happening in your, in your life right now that is contaminating your ability to worship God that needs to be cleansed? Anything. Lying, lusting, cheating. Bitterness, drugs, alcohol, we're told in Scripture, we're told in Corinthians that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't dwell in buildings made with bricks and sticks anymore. He dwells in human hearts. What area or areas of my life need to be cleansed today? What areas need to be cleansed? And then I would ask you, do you welcome people no matter what they look like, no matter what their color is, no matter what? Do you welcome people? And do you extend the love of Christ? And are you willing to love on people that don't look like you, act like you, and talk like you? If not, you need to violently repent. As we move into this time of prayer, there's plenty of room, crosses, places here. You're like... I've got family members, I've got kids, I've got siblings, I've got loved ones. I want to just lay before the Lord. I've got to pray for them. I believe God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we can ask or think. Would you spend some time crying out to the Lord for those loved ones today? This place should be packed with people saying, I am serious about asking God to do what I view to be the impossible.